This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief Mark Galley. Cold Editor-in-Chief Mark Galley. Three degrees out when I left home this morning. So not co-Editor-in-Chief. Cold, cold. Editor. Okay, I'm just making sure. Okay. I was like, wait new title? No. Okay. Yeah. It was three degrees. Even though it said it was going to be like 15 today, I think it was forecasted. However, I'm still a fan of all the snow and I hope it snows again sometime soon. Okay. All right. Mark's like, I don't share that opinion. No, I actually do this winter. I've been trying to embrace the cold and the snow and it's worked. Yes. Well, These are blessings if you if you just think about it for a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. And also the, it's a blessing that we have a warm office and a warm house. All right. Who's joining us today? Gracie Olmsted. She's a writer and journalist from the Washington, D.C. area. She writes regularly for the American Conservative. She's written for the Washington Times, the Federalist, and most important of all, of course, Christianity Today. And she's, uh, when I see her byline, especially in the American Conservative, I stop what I'm doing and I read what she has to say. She's just a very thoughtful writer that I'm glad we can have on our show today. Welcome, Gracie. Well, thank you so much for both the kind words and for having me on the show. Absolutely. I know Mark feels the same, even when you write about Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) The best topic to write about, right? Oh, okay. Well, we'll have to agree to disagree on that. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, no, I actually really appreciate the stuff that you've written on Harry Potter too, Gracie. Don't worry about it. So, Got to speak to all your audiences. Exactly. We can do another radio show at some point about Harry Potter and we can debate its merits. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be <laughs> open to that. Oh, I wouldn't get into that debate. I would I would just be lose hands down and our, and our <laughs> listeners would just trash me and I would lose my reputation as a thoughtful person. Have you read Harry Potter? I read the first one. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just found it. I'm sorry. I just found it boring. So. Okay. That, well. But my kids loved it. My wife loved it. Everybody I know who I respect loves it. So well, I'm obviously out of I touch. know that you've been viewing new things with since you had grandkids. So maybe that maybe will. Maybe I'll have to get back into it. Yeah. We'll see. All right. Well, we are not talking about Harry Potter anymore today. We are actually going to talk politics. So let's get into this discussion. Last week, President Trump made his now infamous remarks disparaging African countries. And sorry, everyone, I have no wish to quote him verbatim here. These comments came in the midst of congressional attempts to pass immigration reform, starting with securing legal status for immigrants who came here illegally as children. When Trump's comments leaked... Our national conversation went into overdrive again. Some members of Congress at the meeting confirmed the remark. Others said they could not remember it. Pundits debated whether or not the president was a racist. Many organizations felt duty-bound to issue press releases denouncing the president. And, once again, an off-the-cuff remark by Donald Trump became a bigger story than the details of the policy in question, which in this case was immigration reform. Trump fascinates all Americans, it seems, wrote our guest Gracie Olmsted for The American Conservative this week. I'm going to continue to quote her here. We hate him or love him. 
fear him or idolize him. That encourages journalists to make every story Trump-centric to feed the love or hate or fear via their reporting. Some of this reporting is a bit too self-conscious or self-aggrandizing. Trump versus the media has become a navel-gazing war that most journalistic outlets are all too happy to fixate on, and it's been profitable for many of them. But amid the back and forth and the endless and breathless coverage of Trump's latest sensational comment, or two, or five, we often forget to step back and consider the bigger picture. We forget to some extent what's real. So this week on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss how as Christians we can thoughtfully respond to our relentless news cycle and keep our focus on the real. So before we get into this discussion, I'd like to remind everyone once again that this podcast is made possible by subscribing to Christianity Today magazine. And one thing that's in our January-February issue right now is our book awards. And Mark, I think that you are someone that has long encouraged people who do want to focus on the real to read books. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we offer this book uh, book awards every year. It's a way to tell our readers these are the books that, through a process of fairly rigorous process of a selection, uh, some of the best books that were published in the previous year. And they're a good place to start if you're thinking about a reading list for the coming year. So the only book on here that I'm disappointed didn't make it to the book awards was a book about Karl Barth. It's literally not. We are not trying to sell your book on the show. We have a but start I, of the show I devoted to I couldn't enter it because I'm the editor of this magazine. But I will say that the books in here are equal, if not better, than that book. So I'd encourage people to get a get the issue and l- look up the books and decide which ones they'd like to read this year. And what's your idea behind getting people to read books rather than only articles? Well, we live in an age in which our attention span is is shorter and shorter. Uh, for various and sundry reasons. And uh, we can fall into the habit of reading Facebook long and Twitter long comments or even article length stuff. And that's, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of article length stuff since I publish something called the Galley Report, which refers people to articles. But there's some ideas that you can't really get your head around or even begin to get your head around unless you spend a long time with them. And so books are a really good way to help people think. And as our news cycle conversation will suggest, (laughs) we are having a hard time thinking in America. So anytime we can get our head in a book, I think it's a plus for, for ourselves and for our country. It's your duty as an American to read a book this year. There you go. Mark on the soapbox right there. You're welcome. (laughs) All right. So again, if you want to read through our book awards, you can do so by getting a copy of this January-February issue by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. So speaking of not thoughtful reactions, Mark, let us give a gut check on everything that we've just kind of discussed, starting with Trump's remarks themselves. Uh, Trump's remarks did not surprise me. Um, I'm sure he said that and worse in many private sessions with his staff, with his family, with friends, who knows with. So it struck me as non-news that he said it, and it struck me as odd that we thought it was such an amazing thing that he said. So I was just mystified as to why we keep thinking when Donald Trump says something rude, bigoted, unfair, unkind, we think it's news. I'm just puzzled why we think that's news now, because it's not news. Uh, it's it's expected. Uh, so I, that's what that's my immediate reaction. I'm just I'm just mystified. Probably no one else has that response. Okay, my gut check was I had a bazillion different gut checks while this was 
happening, I suppose, because it was happening in the middle of immigration reform talks. And there were so many different headlines that just came out at in, in about like 24 hours about what type of Im- what the nature of the immigration reform stuff was going to be that passed. So whether it was going to secure these provisions for DACA, whether it was going to secure funding for the wall. And I actually didn't really pay any attention to his remarks because I thought that they were actually going to pass them or get their act together to pass them bipartisan agreement. And then it kind of the whole thing blew up. I was like, wait, what's going to happen with immigration reform personally? And then I went on vacation for the weekend and tried not to remember that any of this was going on, which I admit is maybe not the best way to do that when there's really important things happening. Um, but I will say I was I was uh, frankly depressed all weekend. The news came out on Friday, I think. And I just and all the reactions came out on Friday. And I was just frankly discouraged that this is the state of 21st century media. This is where we're at. So there you go. We're really my gut check. Well, we really get to go into this more. Yeah. So Whether it was good or bad, or, and I obviously recovered and think the media has a role to play because I'm working at Christianity today, but it can be hard at times. Gracie, maybe you can tell us what your gut check was to this. The interesting thing is that I wrote this piece before Trump's comments became public. I wrote it earlier last week as I was thinking about his tweets regarding North Korea. And I've been writing some about North Korea from a foreign policy perspective. And uh, when he wrote a tweet, just basically challenging Kim Jong-un and saying, you know, I have a nuclear button that's more powerful and wonderful than yours, and I'm not afraid to use it. Just grappling with this sense that the posturing and the style of a a lot of his comments are something that you might expect to see out of a soap opera or something on TV. And yet they're happening in the real world. So how are we supposed to react to something that in essence uh, seems almost too incendiary and sensational to really take seriously and yet could threaten nuclear war and diplomatic relations with, with our allies abroad? Uh, what's what's the wise and measured stance to take as as a media person, as a citizen in the face of a presidential sitcom, if you will, that, that seems to never end, but rather to just escalate. So then it was kind of, as you said, a, a very strong gut check when only a few days later, these comments became public. And once again, I felt there was this very difficult and deep tension between being infuriated and frustrated and, and upset and also wanting to figure out what is the wise and measured way to handle this information uh, as a citizen, as a journalist, as a Christian. And so it's it's such a complex issue. It's one that I don't think I have even close to a perfect solution for, but it's something I wanted to start discussing with people and um, kind of considering what what are we supposed to do in response to uh, the presidential Trump season two we, we seem to find ourselves in. When you are following political news, do you find that you're asking yourself, what am I being told to pay attention to versus what should I actually be paying attention to? Absolutely. I actually think an interesting example of this would be uh, some news coverage I've observed 
today and, and in a couple of days following where uh, Trump had his physical exam. And, and there are a lot of reporters debating the soundness of the results of that exam, whether in fact he is as fit as the doctor said, or whether he's, you know, perhaps um, lacking in the physical fitness that they prescribed to him. And I, I can sort of see the importance of that, but I do think it's a distraction from some larger issues we should probably be paying attention to, like, like, um, all of the issues that we've seen with North Korea and foreign policy lately. We have a government shutdown that people are talking about. And so to some extent, debating Trump's weight at this time and point seems, while not perhaps entirely fruitless, um, perhaps not the most important issue to be fixating on. And yet I think because it's uh, kind of akin to this sort of soap opera-y reality show type um, fixation that's very easy to get people sucked into and interested in. It's very easy for the media to begin discussing it and then for it to kind of take on a life of its own. And so that's something that I've just been thinking about today, actually, and kind of observing the way the news cycle is trending in that regard. I do think, yeah, to be fair to to the media, including American conservative and Christianity Today is, I mean, one of our jobs is to help readers decide what's important. I mean, that's kind of our major editorial voice we have is to decide which stories we're going to cover and how we're going to cover them. And people subscribe. They pay good money for our judgment in that regard. So part of this is a probably a frustration with um, some of the decisions that are being made by major media, I suppose. Um, and it's a disagreement about what they've decided is worth covering. Now, of course, they're in the bind like we all are in the sense of we are vying for the eyeballs and the ears now in podcasts of of listeners and readers. And the fact of the matter is if you put Trump, and there's a few key words you can put in a headline, Trump, sex, a celebrity name, and you're going to get those eyeballs. So I don't I don't think any of us are as base as to think I'm going to do that to manipulate my hearers. But over a period of time when everyone else is talking about something and getting a ton of traffic for it, it's a temptation that's almost impossible to resist. And I would agree. I have talked to people who visited major news outlets and uh, having been at one myself, uh, not major, but a news outlet, I've seen just how easy it becomes to follow traffic and to let that guide uh, what you publish. What are people people uh, clicking on? What stories are keeping their attention? How long are they spending on this story versus that? I heard recently that at a major newspaper here in Washington, there's this big video screen that shows the top hits on their news site at any given time. And the top five stories on any given day usually have Trump on the title. So the question that then was asked by this person who visited the newsroom was, well, what, what are you going to do? What's your reaction going to be if you're a journalist or reporter in that newsroom. Of course, you're going to try and find the next big breaking Trump story so that your name can be up there, you know, for all to see. And and not that it's entirely prideful, but rather it's it's a reaction based off of what you think readers want and, and what you think is the most important story of the day. And if we're just going by clicks and eyeballs, then Trump is always <laughs> the most important story of any day. And I would just personally personally disagree with that and say that maybe perhaps we need to question that and see if there's ways we can get our readers to, yes, consider Trump and what he does, but within a broader context and with greater depth, not just reporting on a tweet that he might send out, but considering all of the issues past and present and future that that's going to influence. So even even when we do report on Trump, taking a larger, more broad and contextual view of 
the current events we're facing. I, I doubt that many journalists ever see themselves as pawns or as part of a system or in this case, even as part of the president's agenda, especially given the fact that Trump has made no secret of his dislike of the media. And yet I think it's really interesting because when Mark and I discuss at times very various things about CT's mission, it's the very fact that we have a mission and in many ways maybe because we're also a nonprofit that allows us to kind of focus on things that may be outside the whirlpool of the national conversation. And it does make me wonder that at some of these like bigger for-profit places that really, really do care about traffic and revenue and don't have some larger, bigger mission to kind of guide their work, if, if that's kind of what makes them vulnerable in some ways to getting caught up in what we may see as potentially superfluous. That's an interesting thought. I know a lot of, you know, newspapers still will have some sort of motto that they go by, whether it's democracy dies in darkness or all the news that's fit to print. One that I always have particularly loved is the American conservatives, which was ideas over ideology and principles over party, which was kind of a daily reminder for me uh, when I was full time there, just that what I saw happening along partisan lines had deeper dynamics on a philosophical and even a spiritual level that really needed to be paid attention to and, and drawn into stories whenever possible. I do think uh, Neil Postman's writing in particular has just continued to stand out to me as something that perhaps not enough news outlet consider as they're putting together stories. And, and that was, of course, Amusing Ourselves to Death is a book in which he kind of tackles the issue of information, how it's disseminated, and how the medium with which it's disseminated, be it radio, television, print, uh, can actually influence both the information and the way in which it's given and the way in which we process it. And so he believed, you know, that um, broadcast journalism and TV news was detrimental uh, in terms of cultivating the attention span of the audience and also in cultivating serious minded news. And he feared that it would turn into sort of an entertainment driven uh, reality show instead of uh, sober minded journalism. And I wonder so often what he would think of the internet, because I don't think that news outlets really intend to let, you know, buttons and clicks and eyeballs drive what they write. However, they're, they've kind of become chained to the medium of the internet in a way that I think is very, uh, problematic and something that we need to continue to grapple with. And so, you know, to some extent, I wonder whether it's not that they don't have lofty aspirations as an outlet, but rather they're struggling with the reality of a medium that is very actually constraining in terms of what they believe they can make money off of. I mean, I've been deeply influenced by both Postman and Jacques Ellul as they have analyzed how modern societies process information, especially through the mass media. It's really interesting that Postman, when he talked about how news began to take on the values of the entertainment values of television when television was the major uh, media of America, I just think it's 
his work is in a sense prophetic, I think there's a lot of ways in which our national conversation is mimicking what a conversation might, one might have on Twitter or one might have on Facebook. We really do inadvertently, without thinking about it, begin to use the values of our technology to decide how we're going to talk to each other. And that obviously has some, it obviously has some advantages, but uh, the thing we're dis- discussing today is the disadvantages of that. So I think you're onto something really keen there that would, it's an older book now, was it 1980, 89, 88? But man, it, it ought to be required reading for every journalist. And I should say by way of uh, self-confession here. I mean, the fact of the matter is anybody who writes, as soon as you put it up online, you start thinking about how many clicks is this thing getting? And every one of us wants those. It's a way of affirming what the work we've put into the piece. So I don't want to pretend like because I work at a nonprofit and because I'm critical of this, I'm not above the fray. I am very much tempted by the fray. And I, uh, I can imagine how much even harder it is at an organization which is driven by different values than we have here at Christianity Today. So I don't want, don't want to cast aspersions or point my finger in another direction without re- recognizing it's, it's a temptation for every one of us. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? Churchlawandtax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join churchlawandtax.com today. So we've been talking a little bit about the pitfalls for journalists, which I think is appropriate given that the three of us are all journalists. But I also want to talk for talk on behalf of our listeners, many of whom are news consumers. Gracie, I'm, I'm just wondering... You know, in your piece, you suggest that many of us have adopted this posture of a reality TV show viewer. We constantly live for the ups and downs of this presidency. What are concrete ways that we, and potentially there's a faith element here, so maybe we as Christians, can avoid this breathlessness? The difficulty, of course, with this particular moment is that we can't ignore all the ups and downs. It's it's kind of built into our national conversation as we have a president who's just a little more temperamental <laughs> to be kind or or volatile than past presidents and so you know when he says something like he did about North Korea or about African countries i do think as citizens we need to be paying attention i think the question is rather how do we add our voices to the conversation and how do we gather that information? So Postman talked about how specific mediums tend to encourage specific sorts of news consumption. I do think most of us are, to some extent, part of the internet in a way that makes it difficult to separate out. I don't think that any of us should be just getting our news from print daily newspapers anymore. I don't, you know, I I visit news sites quite regularly. However, uh, which news sites we go to for our news, the stories we click on, uh, all of that can actually help encourage the conversation in a particular direction. Uh, I also personally do not 
like talk show radio in general. I know there's some very wonderful hosts out there with great things to say and who add to the conversation in a thoughtful way. But because their format is so often centered around debate and arguing, I do think that sometimes they can actually encourage people to take an, a more emotional approach um, to certain news topics and, and that that can be detrimental. I'm not saying always, but once again, it depends a lot on the host. Watching TV news, it, it's very similar. You know, they usually pull a panel together and have people argue over a given topic. And sometimes the conversation is fruitful and thoughtful and draws out points that you may not have heard otherwise. But oftentimes it, it's more of an us versus them sort of clash that can be detrimental to thoughtfulness. And so it's a question of determining what, what can I watch and listen to that's going to not only reinforce my understanding of what's true, but to help me talk about this in a way that's thoughtful and respectful when and if I run into someone who sees it very differently from me. And how can I make sure that I have an, an understanding of the facts that's uh, holistic and that lends itself to longevity and not just to this one 24-hour news cycle that's going to end tomorrow. So whether that's reading a daily newspaper, whether that's trying to get away from sites like, well, and I know that they do some serious reporting now, but at least back in the day when I read it more regularly, you know, kind of that BuzzFeed type of um, sensationalist reporting that could kind of deter you from digging into the facts and the details a little more. I think all of that can be helpful. I also think that we should probably start putting our money where our mouth is. And um, if we find an outlet that we find does an incredible job of reporting well on whatever is going on in our given political moment, if we subscribe to that, you know, newspaper or magazine or have it come to our house, buy it when we can. I just think that's a way that we can actually help influence what's written and how. Um, and finally, I actually think people should probably write more letters to the editor. I think that there's definitely a role to be played by people who want to have their voice heard. It's a way to kind of channel some of your thoughts on a given moment without just going to Facebook and, you know, pouring out a diatribe that may not be taken well by friends <laughs> or family. There's thoughtful ways to put your voice out there. And I think that's one that actually is probably neglected by too many of us. I've already given a plug for CT. I'd, I'd give a plug for the American conservative now. It, it has a particular philosophy of life. Uh, but even when you disagree with it, it's a magazine and a website that does explore issues in a much more thoughtful way than most places. So whenever we can find places to put our money down, it makes a huge statement. It really can help shape things. I think that one thing that news consumers would do well today is to reject the idea that they can be well-informed. And that's a weird thing to say, so I'm going to flesh that out. But I think that we are tempted to believe this lie that says that we can somehow know everything that's going on. And certainly it seems that many of the larger news outlets today give us this impression that we can, that it's, that it's somehow possible for us to know everything that's going on. And I, I honestly think that's not true. And I'll just give one example. I just remember having conversations with folks probably in the office about what Russia was up to in the world a couple of years ago. And it just struck me that I had taken a Russian politics class. I studied politics in college. And I was trying to have a conversation with people who had not only not taken this Russia class with me, they also not did not know anything about Russia politics and didn't really study like political systems in general. And that it, it just felt like, how are we actually going to have a substantive conversation about Russia is doing if we really don't know some of this historical context and background? 
and everything else that would really kind of be necessary to have a thoughtful as opposed to reactive conversation on Russia. But I think there's many issues that you can fill in the blanks for what that would be. So many times we're we're suggested this myth that we can just read an article and really understand what's going on rather than going back to Mark's point, reading books about it or studying something in a class, which is amazing how much you can learn that you don't know about something when you take a class on it. And that maybe the goal is not necessarily about just being in the know, which is something that's hard to say because I love being in the know and I love know what's going on. And to just to just recognize that the, the media will never able be able to give us like this exact full picture, especially if we are insistent on kind of knowing everything that's happening at the same time. So including stuff on sports and entertainment and so forth. I think potentially it might be worth trying to look for ways that we can have sustained engagement on particular issues, particular issues that we feel like God has called us to, to um, either work on those issues in the world or that they are affecting the people and the people's lives that um, are close to us and and to read books and articles about those particular things in general, things that you know, face our communities on a daily basis. That's a good point about the specializing in a cause or two that really move your heart. I think, and those are often a sign from God of what's something you should be working on. Which doesn't mean that you have to thwart other people who are doing God's work there too. It just means that it, it's okay to become a little bit more of an expert in that area, particularly if it directly affects the way that you impact people. Right. And well, and one thing I've been trying to do myself and I've been trying to encourage others who seem particularly disillusioned or discouraged to do is to start focusing more on local news, because obviously there's only so much going on in Washington that we as outsiders and citizens and non-politicians can really understand. We hear kind of the White House gossip and Capitol Hill gossip, and we try to learn what we can from the journalists who are there. But anything from bias to miscommunication to confusion can really give us sometimes a muddled or depressing picture of things. And I think oftentimes it is nice to be able to step back and say, okay, what what influences my world beyond this very far off place? And it, it's boardroom discussions, which which I need to know about, but I also am not going to see influencing my neighbors uh, or fellow church members or members of my county on a daily basis. And, and what will influence them, what will have a big impact on their lives is, of course, what's happening in your neighborhood or your town or your county or your state. And so I do think that there's a, a wealth of information at that level that we can tap into to perhaps feel a little more empowered and energized in the midst of our political moment. I will say that it does seem that our particular culture really centers around American identity often more than local or, or state identities. And so that I think that one way that Trump has been able to stay in the limelight so much is because often his comments have to do with American identity. And so in that vein, Gracie, you know, do you believe that Trump deliberately tries to rattle people to get them talking about his tweets and comments rather than the substance of his policies? And if so, how should we respond when he says inflammatory things? <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting. I've, I've heard several people in this D.C. area say that when it comes to Trump's actual policy stances, save for perhaps some of the more inflammatory stuff that he's pushed forward um, on immigration or a couple other issues, most of it 
say, the tax bill has been very mainstream Republican, not something unexpected or particularly populist by any means. It's really his rhetoric that has driven a much stronger, more inflammatory, more extreme uh, version of what's happening in the White House. And I don't, I mean, I have never met Trump and I am not inside his head. So I don't know whether it's intentional or whether it could be just a subconscious outpouring of a life that's been lived in the tabloids and in the limelight. And he's been a reality show host and he's been at the center of New York gossip for his entire life. And so you have to imagine that that sort of influence and attention would impact the way that you communicate and the way that you go about interacting with other people. And whether intentionally or no, I think he's built up a sort of notoriety that is difficult to ignore. And he does seem to crave attention and to try and pull people in on a daily basis. And perhaps because of his background, has the skills to do it in a way that, while controversial, is incredibly successful. One of the things I wrote in my piece that I just believe uh, has been really eye-opening is that while Trump may never be the most popular president in U.S. history, he's going to be one of the most notorious. And whether intentional or no, that's something he's managed to achieve via his words especially, but also his actions. Yeah, I think this is kind of the the hard place that many of us find in where we're just trying to understand what the difference is between inflammatory comments and something that's drawing attention to something deserving our national attention. And I know you tried to distinguish earlier between the president's physical versus something with North Korea, but unfortunately, there's a lot that is in the middle of that continuum. We might want to follow a biblical precedent here, and I think it's biblical, where we watch what I do and not not what I say. In other words, I think your reaction to the comment, Morgan, about African countries and people from Haiti uh, was to say, I wonder how this is going to impact the bill. That's the really important question. Mm -hmm. He said something that's going to make that harder to get a constructive piece of immigration reform done. So I think, uh, and then to, to move from, okay, he says these things all the time, but actually when he sits down with people and makes an agreement with Congress or with a foreign leader, what actually happens? That might be the better place for us to spend most of our time. We can't ignore the comments because as Gracie's noted, they do shape how things happen. I don't think we're going to change his, uh, Gracie, you had a really good point about his background as being in the, in the tabloids and uh, he's 70, what is he, 70? He's yeah. in his 70s. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we're going to change his personal behavior. But uh, there is still this thing called the United States government, Congress, the Supreme Court, and we, have, we, can, we can help shape policies, actual things that happen on the ground still. So much of the reporting surrounding these comments that Trump makes, they're pointing out a very, very true, but at this point, as you pointed out earlier, Mark, a very obvious fact, which is that Trump is not presidential in the way that we have come to expect it with sort of the gentlemanly mores and the uh, restrained composure that we would associate with a George Washington or someone of that of that caliber and of that uh, distinction. And so I think we're at war with ourselves in not wanting to let that go, that he does not seem presidential in the way that we have built it up in the character, or the virtue that we would expect in the comments that he makes, which seem so jarring when we associate it with president's past that we might admire. However, I do think, as you pointed out, we've we've already made that clear 
we already know that about Trump. We've known that since he began running. And so to some extent, until unless and until something truly jaw-dropping and legally binding were to happen, that's a story I think we need to let go to some extent in order to tell, as you pointed out, the broader story of how this particular comment impacts a much broader set of uh, policy issues or, or real life decisions that need to be made. I was thinking of a TED talk that I recommend about what's called, quote, the danger of a single story. And I was thinking of that line as it applies to statistics and tweets, or you could call it the danger of a single stat or the danger of a single tweet, and how as news consumers, you know, and obviously as members of the media too, but definitely as news consumers, we don't want to be the ones that are going to try to tell or read into too much from either one of those. And how Twitter especially makes it really easy to amplify good and ugly things, even as we're trying to distance ourselves from those ugly things or condemn them or um, say something else that's kind of disparaging about them or raise questions about them. Being a good news consumer would be someone who always tries to give more context about things or links to stuff that provides more context about things rather than running with probably might, might be the most sensational part of. All right. So... As Christian journalists, I know Mark talked about this earlier about kind of how it's our job, or at least at Christianity Today, to tell our readers what is important and what's going on. And I would just be interested to hear, like, how are you guys determining what that who is like setting the agenda for your for you to set the agenda for other people? Because you work in a different environment than we do, because we're constantly thinking specifically in faith terms about every issue we confront, but you're in a, a larger secular setting. And how do you think about that as a Christian? What to cover, what not to? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I, I've found that I, I do believe that the Lord can guide you as a writer into specific topics, as, as you guys already pointed out, kind of determining what ought I to be an expert on. Not that I'm an expert at anything, really. I don't think I could say that about myself. But what should I focus on? What subjects has God given me perhaps a unique perspective on via my own personal history or or things I've read or learned throughout my life? And then trying to kind of channel most of my energy and thought into those subjects Personally, I have tried to not get too deeply muddled in trending topics of a given day until they seem to demonstrate newsworthiness and they're still popping up within the next several days or the next week. And so it's interesting. I oftentimes find myself slightly behind perhaps on what's going on, but only by really in terms of context, only by a few days, because it, it helps to sort of sit back and see if this topic keeps coming to the forefront and then to start clicking on the links and, and to, to use that as sort of a determination of um, what's most important on a given day, if it's outside that realm of the stories I truly believe God's called me to write on, just waiting to see what happens with that particular trending piece of news. And I actually work from home. I have a, a toddler. And so I've found that having breaks throughout my day in which I'm not working, uh, in which I'm washing dishes or coloring or reading Dr. Seuss, has actually helped incredibly in determining how to write and what stories really seem to be important. I think sometimes our brains just need a break from the constant onslaught of information. We need to step back and allow ourselves 
time to breathe and to think and not be so constantly enmeshed in information. And I do think it's made me a better writer to have sort of that separation from the constant onslaught of news. Oh my gosh, we are soulmates when it comes to that business of, <laughs> of delaying reading trending news. I just have this visceral reaction against something that everybody's talking about and reading about. But I last longer than a week. I usually go two to three weeks which can be really embarrassing for the editor-in-chief of a magazine when someone says, so what do you think about what's happening with X? Well, I really don't know. I haven't read anything about it. <laughs> I mean, one thing I do, and this is in terms of my consuming news, uh, reading news, is I hate to say something so simplistic, but it really is helpful, is, is to just keep your head in the Bible regularly. I mean, it is, it is uh, from a, even if you take it out of the spiritual realm, it is a classic piece of literature, and anything that's classic in that regard by itself, without its spiritual value, is going to help you remember, remind you a lot of the problems we're facing today are not new. A lot of the situations we find ourselves and even political situations are not new. A lot of the injustice we are angry and frustrated, rightly so, about is not new. And just that alone, let alone not even counting the spiritual resources that Scripture can give you, kind of helps gives me that perspective to understand when a new story rises and everyone's panicking like this is the first time something like this has ever happened, to step back and say, well, no, not really. And there might be a way for us to think about this in a larger context that could be really helpful. I echo that. But then I actually sometimes feel like, how do you know when it's actually important that like if this just stuff happens all the time, which I I'll often find when I'm reading our archives, I'm like, oh, we've covered this religious freedom in Burma, for instance, five times in the past 15 yeah, years. So yeah. that story just won't go away, even though the last time when I had just heard about the story two days ago, I thought it was new, you know, and then it I get worried that I get into this like, well, nothing is new under the sun exactly. type of thing. Do, do we right. even need newspapers? <laughs> Well, uh, part of our go our mission is is a mission of love and concern for our readers, and if it concerns them, it concerns us. So that's why we keep you know that's a, one of the things. After you worked with a magazine like CT Lab for now for uh, seventeen years, we are covering a lot of the same topics we covered back in two thousand two thousand one when I started. And the reason why we do it, it's a new generation of readers who haven't thought about that particular issue in a particular way, and we're obligated to at least try to help them think through it. But you're right. There are days when it's like, especially when you're at my advanced age, there really is nothing new under the sun. And you have to kind of remember, no, there is there is new stuff under the sun for a lot of the readers. I've been encouraged to really embrace the limits of both our lives here on Earth. I, I came to that moment, not with uh, news and journalism, but uh, when I visited the Biltmore Estate as a teenager and realized that George Vanderbilt read over 3,000 books in his lifetime. And of course, he was uh, he had a lot more leisure time on his hands than most of us do, uh, working nine to five jobs and commuting or chasing around toddlers. And so I realized that even though that number sounded quite small in my mind as this aspiring bookworm, I would probably never be able to achieve that great of a amount of reading in my lifetime. And, and it kind of challenged me to say very early on, you know, there's only so much. There's only so much I can read. There's only so much I can know. There's only so much wisdom or knowledge that I can accumulate in my lifetime. And yet, as a Christian, um, I have the fount of information and truth at my fingertips, which, as Mark already pointed out, is the Bible. And there's a lot of comfort in that. But I think, too, the thing I've been reminding myself in this particularly disillusioning or depressing news cycle is just to 
keep turning back to Philippians and the words Paul tells us to meditate on, you know, what is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report. And of course, while not all of the news is ever that, unfortunately, I do think that's where our minds should be dwelling and simmering and and pulling from. Um, And so that's been my daily challenge for myself. That's a very good word. Thank you. All right. Anyone who has feedback for us can leave it on Twitter at CT Podcasts, where we will try to respond thoughtfully in a medium that's not always the most thoughtful. All right. So now it's the time of the show we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy on a personal level this week. Gracie, you want to go? Sure. Well, I can make a fun announcement that hasn't appeared on Twitter or the blogosphere yet. I'm having a baby. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. And we just found out last Friday we're having a little girl. So two girls. Um, yes, two girls. So my life is overwhelmed with joy at present. So yes. It's awesome. Did you tell your daughter yet? Yes. She actually she just got her first toddler bed and so that really helped kind of bring this whole thing into a more real zone because I asked her if she could give the crib, which has, you know, been her bed up until this point to the new baby and, and it kind of hit her face and she looked at me and said, Yes, yes, baby sister can have the crib. That can be her bed. And so now whenever we go into her room, she points at the crib and says, that's for baby sister. And she looks at her bed and says, that's my special bed. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been really cute to see her kind of slowly realize that she's going to be a big sister soon. Well, that's awesome. Where can people find you online? Uh, My Twitter handle is Gracie, G-R-A-C-Y, Olmstead. I'm also on Facebook. Um, If you just search Gracie Olmstead, Gracie with a Y, it should show up. Mark. Well, my joy is coming, and that's coming this weekend. Going to Denver, visit son, daughter-in-law, grandchildren, and to my wife's delight, besides the grandchildren, going to the Denver Stock Show 2018, which she loves to go to. Tell me about that. Well, among among the many things that are at that show, there is generally a a competition between dogs that uh, herd cattle herd sheep and to watch them work with their owners and work with the cattle and the sheep is just an amazing thing. They're not sheep dogs. Well, they can be. They're generally uh, Australian shepherds or they're um, border collies. Cool. Are the two most popular breeds. But the event itself, I can't remember what it's called, but that's what they do in the event. It's pretty impressive with some of these dogs. They're pretty They're pretty smart. They've been trained, but both created and trained to do this. Awesome. All right. Where can people find you? As I mentioned earlier, uh, the Galley Report is a weekly newsletter in which I feature links to thoughtful articles and comment on them. And you can find that at christianitytoday.com slash the galley report, G-A-L-L-I report, and subscribe or just read it there. My precious moment is very bittersweet this week. One of my best friends in Chicago is moving next week to Los Angeles. And the sweet part about it is that I was helping her pack last night. And that is sweet because I'm glad to return all the favors that people have done me when it comes to packing. I hate moving. It's the wor- one of the worst things ever. And so I've had multiple people help me when it comes to packing and moving things up over the years. And so I was glad to help her out a little bit too, especially when you're so daunted by the amount of stuff that you have. 
you hate all of it. I wish it would just go away. <laughs> all right. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thanks for everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You could find this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. However, as we'd like to remind you guys, Apple Podcasts is a great place to leave your reviews and leave your feedback. And it's stuff that we look over and take to heart. So thank you for everyone who has done that. Again, another way you can support the show too is by getting a subscription to Christianity Today magazine. And that's available at orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. We'll see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.